Hello, it's Tuesday 30th of November. I'm Andrew Pearce and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, is staying awake the trick to beat insomnia? It's an interesting idea. Boris Johnson, a sharp slump in support for the Prime Minister in a new poll by Ipsos Mori. Differences are emerging now between Scotland and England about how we should deal with international travellers. But first... The South African officials say that Omicron variant is highly transmissible, but the symptoms appear to be mild. But there's been a sharp increase in the number of hospitalizations in the area where the variant was first discovered. So South African health officials are suggesting that while the Omicron variant is highly transmissible, they still say the symptoms appear to be mild. However, new reports suggest where the variant was first detected, hospitalizations have risen by 330 percent. Andrew Friedman is reader in infectious diseases and honorary consultant physician at Cardiff University and joins me now. Dr Friedman, we simply don't know enough yet about the severity of this variant. The doctor who discovered it, I've heard her interviewed several times saying that the the symptoms are mild but the fact that so many people are going into hospital suggests perhaps not as mild as we perhaps first thought. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and I think the honest answer is we do not know at this stage, and it's probably going to be several more weeks before we get enough information about the the clinical course of this uh, uh, variant uh, Omicron infection uh, in different patient groups. So not just in young, healthy adults, but in older people, people with comorbidities, people who've been vaccinated, and obviously people who are not vaccinated. So uh, I think we have to watch this space. Yeah, a lot of people, we don't know much about it, of course, but um, what we've heard about the current symptoms, often it's sore muscle tiredness, but the fact that people are going to hospital is a worry. The mutations that um, are occurring in this variant, is that what's causing the concern to people here, Dr. Friedman? Uh, Yes, it is. and There are a large number, a much larger number of mutations than seen in other variants, and over 30 of those are in the spike region of the uh, of the virus, then that's the bit that, that uh, the uh, all the vaccines, the current vaccines, are targeted against. So uh, the big concern is that the the vaccines are not going to be so effective against this variant. The government is, we know, going to massively uh, step up the booster jab. It's going to be extended to people over the age of eighteen, and they're going to lower the limit of when you when you're eligible to have it. Is that the right way forward, in your view? Yes, I think it is. We, we know that giving a, a booster dose, so a third dose, uh, massively increases the, the antibody levels in, in vaccinated individuals. And uh, uh, the, the feeling is, and I think it, it, it's certainly sensible, that, uh, that the higher the, the, the level of antibodies you, you can generate with, through vaccination, the more chance you have of, uh, of being able to protect against this variant. Uh, it's not an all or nothing uh, response. It's likely that the vaccines will work to some extent. Uh, and the, 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 the more people are vaccinated and have had boosters, uh, the better off we're going to be. Some people are saying the masks uh, in public places such as um, public transport and if you go into a shop is so good so far, but other, other people in, in, in the uh, health industry, industry is the wrong word, people in the health sector are suggesting that actually the mask wearing should be extended far more. For instance, in schools, the kids are being told wear them in communal areas. What about the classroom? Yes, I mean, it's 
perfectly reasonable. In fact, in Wales, where I work and, and live, yeah. that is the case. They are being uh, recommended, strongly recommended to wear them in the classroom. We don't have any evidence uh, about that. And uh, uh, in fact, we really don't know how effective masks are in, in protecting against it. Uh, so I, I think the jury's out in that respect. But, but obviously, every measure that we can take, uh, mm. particularly ones that are not too uh, difficult and, and don't interrupt normal life uh, much, that they're going to be worth, uh, worth following. The worry for the hospitality industry, just finally, Dr. Rubin, um, is that um, the great Christmas party, we're just about to get into the Christmas party season, a lot of people are perhaps going to cancel those now because they'll be worried about being in such close proximity to each other. We know when people drink more, they get closer than normal. Um, would Do you think it, that people should be cancelling these parties or should life carry on? Uh, well, I, I'm one for, who really feels that life should carry on as much Good. as possible. Good, so am I. Good. Uh, so carry on with the office party, in your view? At the moment, no reason to, to cancel them. But clearly, if things change for the worse, uh, then we might have to think again, but, but not at this okay. stage. Are you having an office party at um, Cardiff University? Uh, there'll be lots of different uh, office parties, I think, <laughs> in different Very parts good. of the university. Very good, Dr. Freeman. That's Dr. Andrew Freeman. He's an honorary consultant physician at Cardiff University and a reader in infectious diseases. Thanks for joining us. Visit malplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pierce Show for free, in full, and our other podcasts and video series as well. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has written to Boris Johnson urging that all international travellers should be required to self-isolate for eight days and to take a PCR test on day two and day eight of their arrival. Currently, of course, in England, the rule is you take a PCR test when you get back and you have to isolate until you get your result. Downing Street has rejected this request and has also refused to convene a COBRA meeting. Dr Philippa Whitford is the MP for Central Ayrshire and she's the SNP's health spokesperson at Westminster uh, and she's been at the COVID restrictions which is going on in the Commons today and joins me now. Dr Whitford, um, a sharp difference between Scotland and England. Well, it's not just Scotland. Actually, the Scottish and Welsh governments have both called for the same, uh, to have a COBRA meeting and to extend the isolation for eight days. Now, the two reasons. One is that actually the incubation period of COVID is much longer than two days. And the danger is that getting a false negative at two days before your infection properly develops could mean people were given a false sense of reassurance and were back out and about socializing. Um, So with this variant, which obviously we are concerned about, is to just go back to being stricter and having that longer isolation so that you are certain that people have not brought it in. They should also be actually looking for PCRs before people travel because, you know, just doing it at two days when you've spent eight hours on a flight with hundreds of other people seems a little bit like, you know, closing the stable door after the horse has bolted. And the issue for the Scottish and Welsh governments is that the majority of long haul flights arrive in the major English hubs like Heathrow or Manchester. And therefore, it's very difficult for the devolved nations to manage that if there isn't a four nation agreement on the management of the external borders and travel. 
I'm not here to speak for the government, but of course, um, ministers will tell you that we don't know yet that this uh, variant um, is necessarily more um, uh, dangerous to people's health. Although we have been discussing in this podcast how hospitalizations in the part of South Africa where it was first identified have increased dramatically. Well, there's lots we don't know about it. Um, We don't know with regards to severity. And part of that is because the initial infections were among students who, of course, you know, as is the case in the UK, tend not to have such severe infections. So we don't know quite what it's going to do among older or more vulnerable people. The rise in in hospitalisation in South Africa, we don't know if all those cases are Omicron, but obviously, as you say, it is in those areas. But the two real aspects of concern is that it does have multiple mutations, including those that would make it able to spread more easily, but also those that are associated with vaccine escape. And and just having those mutations together on one variant is really concerning. And what's happened over the first three waves, so from last spring, last autumn, and then with Delta, the government waited until a real issue was proven. And by that stage, we were already behind the curve. They have taken some action quicker this time, and I welcome that. But, you know, I don't think they're going far enough because we really don't want Omicron to get established across the UK. And and can I just check with you, uh, Dr. Whitford, so far, touch wood, Scotland has not identified any cases of this new variant. Oh, uh, no, that's incorrect. Um, Ah. One of the advantages we have in diagnosis is that one of the genes that PCR tests look to detect is missing in Omicron. So you actually get a bit of a heads up from a positive PCR that you may already be dealing with an Omicron case. Um, And therefore, what they've been doing in Scotland is a retrospective review of recent positive PCR results. And actually, we've detected nine through that. I haven't heard of that work happening elsewhere in the UK, but I assume it would be going ahead as well. And can I ask also, um, uh, apart from the difference now on the uh, PCR tests and and the isolation period, are you adopting the same red list of countries or will your list be be, be bigger? Well, the, at the moment, the, we, we tried that back in the spring of having different quarantine rules. And as I say, the majority of long-haul travellers arrived through Heathrow or Manchester. Um, and yes. the UK government was unwilling to isolate Scottish uh, residents at that entry point. Um, and that's why the Scottish and Welsh governments really want a COBRA meeting to agree it. Scotland never got rid of mandatory masks in shops and on public transport and in schools and the guidance is to work from home. So in our domestic regulations, we have always been going further than uh, the UK government. But for external travel, it really is something that needs to be agreed. And it's wrong of the Prime Minister to describe things as a four-nation approach. If actually what it is, is he just plucks his plan out of the air and everyone else has to just follow along without discussion. All right, that's the SNP's health spokesperson at Westminster, Dr Philippa Whitford, who is the, the SNP MP for Central Asia. Thanks for joining us. Visit melplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at melplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce.
A new poll has shown a sharp slump in support for the Prime Minister. Ipsos Mori's latest political pulse shows public favourability towards Boris Johnson at the lowest level since the survey began back in 2019. Just 24% of the public are favourable towards Boris Johnson, 51% unfavourable. Kieran Pedley is the Director of Politics at Ipsos Mori, the market research company. Kieran, is the Prime Minister paying a price for the row over sleaze, not least the way they did that screeching U-turn over whether or not to support Owen Paterson, who'd clearly broken the rules about lobbying the former Conservative Minister Owen Paterson lobby, over lobbying commercial companies? Well, I think it's hard to disentangle the various challenges. I think let's just use that diplomatic language that the, uh, the government um, and Boris Johnson are are facing at the moment. You're, you're quite right to say his favourability ratings have, have somewhat tanked since last May, if you look at the uh, the trend line, which is available on our website. I mean, there's a couple of different points I'd raise. Um, yeah. There is a general there is a general sort of sense of malaise at the moment, a general sense of the country heading in the wrong direction. So this is something we track in the same survey. So right now, uh, as of November, 46% think things are going in the wrong direction uh, and 27% think things are going in the right direction. What's interesting about that, actually, is that back, back in January, the numbers were very, very similar. So 47, 30, uh, uh, sorry, uh, 24, 46, rather than uh, yeah. 27, 46. So very, very similar. But what happened, of course, with the vaccine was that uh, and the vaccine balance, as we saw in May, we, we saw people think uh, 47% thinking that things were going in the right direction and 30, uh, 34% saying wrong. So we've seen a, something of a bell curve, a reverse bell curve, maybe, uh, over the course of the year. I think the, um, the so-called three delegations are, are part of that, but also there's a general sense of pessimism about the economy too, which we shouldn't overlook. So in our most recent political monitor, 28% of the public thought the economy is going to improve in the next year and 54% said it would get worse. And you don't need to be a numbers expert to, to, to tell that's a, a fair dose of pessimism that's around at the moment. And of course, that's not new to politics. Um, we see that from time to time. Um, but I suppose if you're in the government circles, you're wondering where that next bounce is going to come from. Yeah, and of course we've seen the spectre of inflation return for the first time. That will be worrying people. Uh, soaring energy prices that will impact. Although it's not the prime minister, the government's fault about soaring energy prices that will impact too. It will be worrying in number ten for them, Kieran. Of course, because it's on the economy that they've had the clearest lead over Labour for many years. And if that starts to erode, then they could be in serious trouble. Yes, although at the moment it should be said that the Conservatives do still seem to have a lead on the economy. These things are never set in stone, of course. I mean, one of the interesting things that we track is what do people actually mean uh, when we say the economy? What are the public actually judging um, that on? And you're right, that inflation and prices seems to be something that uh, is top of mind, as is unemployment. And we asked a similar question back in 2013 when, of course, um, George Osborne was Chancellor. Uh, different environment then, but those were the two top issues that people judged the economy on. What's interesting now, though, actually, is people are less likely to judge the economy on public debt um, and they're more likely to judge it on so-called cost of living items like yes. salaries or house prices and things like that. So, I mean, so there's similarities in how people judge the economy, but there are also underlying differences as well, which I think policymakers and politicians need to bear in mind. Yeah, and the Prime Minister's rating is very low. Is he still ahead um, of Keir Starmer in terms of who people regard, Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, in terms of who people regard as the best Prime Minister? Well, we tend to see, uh, actually, funnily enough, we tend to see Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer roughly neck and neck on that measure. It's not to say that Keir Starmer's ratings are particularly uh, positive either, but I I guess it's a bit like, um, (laughs) we've heard this a lot in politics, but 
bit of a plague on both your houses. I mean, Starmer started yes. well. His early, his early poll ratings were, were very, very good. And they've steadily eroded for various, uh, for various reasons. Boris Johnson's have, have sort of gone up and down during the, during the parliament. I mean, to, to give you an example, um, in June, his net satisfaction rating, Boris Johnson, uh, so that's when you t- subtract the number that are negative from the number that are positive, uh, was minus three. It's now minus sort of 27. I think one of the interesting dynamics with, with Boris Johnson is just that steadily what we saw uh, maybe a year or so ago is that he was um, easily retaining that 2019 conservative base. That seems to be a little bit more, a little bit more fraught now, not saying that these hemorrhaging votes or anything like that, but there seems to be that bit more uh, discomfort amongst 2019 conservatives. Mm. So for example, 55%, whilst 55% of 2019 conservatives are happy with the government, uh, 38% are dissatisfied. When we dig into that a little bit deeper, it does seem that immigration is, uh, is part of that conversation, yes. which maybe we'll come to. Yeah, and I, and I noticed as well that Labour are now ahead of the Tories on who's got the best policies on immigration, which is ironic because Labour don't have any policies on immigration, it seems to me. Well, this is referencing a poll that we, um, that we conducted recently where we looked at, um, on a 10-point scale, we asked the public yeah. to say, whether you think each of the parties has uh, the right, exactly the right policies, so that would be a, a score of 10, or all the wrong policies, which would be a score of, of zero. I think that, statistically speaking, I think Labour and the Conservatives were roughly neck and neck, although you're right, in absolute terms, Labour, Labour slightly ahead. Um, but what's mm. driving that, really, um, Andrew, is that um, obviously these are, these are assessed independently, so it might be a bit different when you ask people to choose yes. between the two parties. That's a slightly yeah. different question, which was great to know independently. But I think what's driving that is this um, it's, it's 2019 Conservative voters. So yes. um, 2019 Conservative voters, I think I'm right in saying about 51% gave uh, the, the Conservative Party, uh, that's their own side, if you like, uh, a score of zero to four on immigration, which is a negative score. Uh, and 31% yeah. gave them a score of uh, six or above out of 10, so a positive score. So of the 14 issues we had in our poll where we asked people to rate... Um, each party on a 10-point scale, there was only one issue where um, the Conservative Party supporters were more negative about the Conservative Party than positive, and that was immigration. On the Labour side, there wasn't a single issue where Labour supporters were more negative about Labour uh, than positive, which, you know, you might expect because they're yeah. supporters of that party. I suppose the only caveat I would say is when you talk to those 2019 Conservative voters about Labour, they're even more negative about the Labour Party's immigration policies. So I suppose what our poll seems to suggest is that the Conservatives are vulnerable on immigration because their voters yeah. from 2019 are unhappy, but they might not necessarily be vulnerable from Labour. It might come from other parties. Fascinating, isn't it? Well, I mean, of course, a lot of this is all to do with the channel crossings, I imagine, Kieran, don't you? Possibly. I mean, we don't... Uh, well, I, should, I, I have to give a slightly academic answer here, which is that we didn't yeah. prompt why. So no. uh, I think that's a reasonable, it's a reasonable assumption, but of course there are other, there are other issues around um, sort of terrorist attacks and... Um, yeah, uh, and what 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 happened? What the immigration status might have been of different people and in those and and that sort of thing, um, but I, and also just ongoing uh, arguments over Brexit and the future sort of uh, um, points based system and so on and so forth. But I think I think it's fair to say if you've got a, a group of conservatives that are unhappy with the Conservative Party, even less impressed with Labour, it's, it's probably not because they're probably not unhappy with the Tories because they're uh, they think they're being too tough. So, uh, but I suppose right. that what, what, the only other thing I'd add is that when we ask about the different ministers in our poll, um, the one that does the worst on net favourability with Tory voters is uh, Pretty Patel. So there is a sort of coherence to some yes. of the numbers. 
That's the Home Secretary, of course. Fascinating. Kieran, great to talk to you. That's Kieran Pedley, who's Director of Politics at Ipsos Mori, with that poll showing a sharp slump in support for Boris Johnson. Going to have to pull his socks up, in my view. Time for our regular city update now with Ruth Sunderland, business editor at the Daily Mail. Ruth, there's been a lot of turbulence in the markets, of course, because of Omicron. How go they today? So today the FTSE is down again. Um, so just um, over the past five days, it's lost around 2.65% um, over the past five days. It had a big fall on Friday, uh, which we saw this was because of the um, emergence of, of the Omicron variant. Um, and today, yeah. we've, so it regained a little bit of that, not, not all of it, it regained some of it on Monday. And then this morning, we heard from a chap called Stéphane Boncel, who's the boss of Moderna, which is one of the biggest vaccine producing companies, one of the big pharma companies. And he said that he thought that the Omicron variant would lead to a material drop in the efficacy of the vaccine. Now, that obviously was absolutely not what the markets wanted to hear. Really, you know, bad news. So we saw big falls, um, not just the FTSE 100, but the DAX in Germany, the CAC 40 in France, the Pan-European Stock 600 Index, that was down by about 1.5%. That was hitting its lowest level in several weeks. So this is not good news. Now, I would, however, say to people, please don't panic. Um, don't rush to sell all your shares all at once. Um, we did see big falls in March of 2020 when we went into lockdown, and the market yeah. has regained all of that um, and more. Both the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 250 are still higher than they were this time last year. Um, so the FTSE 100 is up about 8.3% on this time last year. So just to keep a little bit in perspective, really, if you are a small private investor... Yeah, and of course we have to we have to we have to care about these markets because of course they impact directly on our pensions, not least. They do. So even if you think you're not a share investor, and even if you don't hold any stocks and shares directly, if you have a pension or if you have a stock market linked ISA, you are exposed to the market. Most of us, one way or the other do have stock market exposure, so it does matter to all of us. Um of course it's also a question of morale, isn't it? Um, you know, the FTSE 100 is a bit of a, we, we think of it as being a bit of a bellwether index. And to some degree, we look at that and, and you know, lots of international firms, it's not, not really the direct link that it once was. Um, but when the FTSE 100 up, we all feel that little bit more cheerful, really, even if we that's do. just more of a subliminal thing. Absolutely right. That's Ruth Sunderland, who is, of course, the Daily Mail's business editor. Thanks for joining us. Is staying awake the trick to beat insomnia? Some sleep experts are suggesting a method called the paradoxical intention could help people break the insomnia cycle. Well, what does it mean, paradoxical intention? Stephanie Romyshevsky is an expert sleep physiologist and she joins me now. Um, what does it mean, Stephanie? 
Hi. Um, so basically, paradoxical intention is doing the exact opposite. So the thing you fear the most, which is staying awake. So often mm. when we're trying to sleep, we sort of scrunch our eyes shut. We might be tight in a ball. We might be having a go at our own selves going, sleep, 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 please, 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 come on. I've only got three hours. I need to, I need to sleep. And so, of course, what you're really doing is you're actually increasing your heart rate, your temperature, and a load of other physiological responses which aren't conducive to sleep. So actually, you're winding yourself up, not winding yourself down. And so actually, there's lots of evidence to show that if that particular process is stopping you from sleeping, that pressure, then actually alleviating that pressure can be incredibly helpful. So how about laying back like a starfish, keeping your eyes open in a pitch black room and saying to yourself, I will keep my eyes open, I will stay awake. And actually, in some cases, this can actually help you fall asleep because you're taking all of that pressure away. But here's the thing. It is true that spending more time awake will actually improve your sleep drive and help you to sleep more. But if you've got a chronic sleep issue that you've had for, say, longer than three months, this is no longer a case of you just being too anxious to fall asleep. A pattern has formed in your brain and that requires a bit of reprogramming. So unfortunately, a mere, the mere act of doing one little uh, like behavior change in the night, although it can be incredibly helpful in, in sort of acute insomnia, so you haven't had it for long, if it's been a bit too long now, then it's probably time to seek out a sleep expert to get a little bit of support. What, what, how many of us um, in, in Britain would you say, Stephanie, have a problem with getting to sleep? So at any one time, when we look at the research, it's about a third of us that can have symptoms of insomnia. But if we're really looking at cases of diagnosed insomnia, so real long term, it's happening frequently. We're looking at about 10% of the population, which is still quite a lot. Mm, it is. And of course, insomnia can lead to all sorts of other issues. Well, it's true, but actually not maybe the ones that you're thinking. So let me put it this way. In the, in the last 17 years of doing this, I'm not seeing patients in my clinics dropping down dead or getting incredibly sick as a consequence of insomnia. Indeed, I see people that have suffered from this for decades. But what I am seeing is people that are very anxious. I'm seeing people who are constantly on a knife edge. It's an insidious problem. It constantly makes you feel like something bad is going to happen. But the reality is you can actually live with insomnia. It is indeed just another pattern of sleep. It doesn't mean it can't be fixed. So there is something out there which is kind of similar to what we've been talking about called sleep restriction therapy, which does indeed manipulate that idea of staying awake for longer, but we manipulate it in a certain way. So it's important to do it with a sleep specialist. And what that actually does is by closing your sleep window, we can actually improve the quality and increase your sleep duration but it's not the way that people think they should do it so you know going to bed early lying in resting more counseling exercise not seeing your friends late at night those things aren't going to help in fact they're going to move you away from your normal routine which isn't going to send good signals to your brain and how much in your view what how much sleep should we be getting a night if you're um an adult um maybe 30 40 50 um, is there a, is is 8 hours the desired amount so 
everybody is different and this is really important there are short sleepers and there are long sleepers yes it does seem that a lot of us fall into the category of somewhere between around seven and nine hours but i think it's very unhelpful to think about it in those ways i think we should all be concentrating more on the quality and making yep. sure we feel good when we wake up um, and if those things aren't there then absolutely definitely seek support to get some help with it but I think striving for something which is it's impossible there is no sleep perfection you cannot get eight hours every single night even if you're an eight hour sleeper to so somebody who actually has figured out that they probably do need around eight hours mm. because that's what they seem to get they will never get that every single night. We have to normalize. Sleep problems are normal. They, 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 they happen when we have variables that change in our lives. It's the, it's the ratio of good sleep to bad that we need to watch out for. We need to make sure that we have a good sleep ratio. It needs to be higher. Um, and we can do that in certain ways. But I feel that us worrying and fearing about what lack of sleep will do and concentrating on how many hours is actually making the problem worse because it's increasing our anxiety, which, as you guessed it, actually yeah. increases our, uh, our, our chances of getting insomnia. What do you say to people just finally, Stephanie, if you go into a chemist, um, uh, perhaps Boots or instance, you will see a rose of um, sleep aids, um, uh, herbal pills, all sorts of things. Yeah. Are they are they good or bad? So there's no real good or bad, but it's just about what they're going to do for you at the time. So if you are a rip roaring insomnia sufferer, so it's been mm. it's it's happened over time, then nothing you do suddenly is going to fix your sleep. It's something that you do over right. time. It's a reprogramming of those behaviors that will lead to better sleep that's going to be helpful. But in the short term, there are solutions that you can do that may relax you in the short term. If you haven't already got a rip-roaring condition, but you're just looking for something that might make you feel more relaxed, it might help you to, to wind down a little bit. But, but mm. certainly none of those things, when you've got a chronic rip-roaring problem, are going to help. There is only one solution for insomnia, and that is something called CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. It is not the same as CBT for depression or anxiety, but it is the only thing we know of that will actually long-term be able to get rid of your problem for good rather than things that may anecdotally help for a short amount of time but won't get rid of the problem overall. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. That's Stephanie Romyshevsky, who is an expert sleep physiologist, talking about this new, uh, well, it's not new, it's called Paradoxical Intention. Do you know what, Stephanie? I'm going to try it when I can't get to sleep. <laughs> I'm just going to lie there with my eyes open in the dark. I'll let, good. I'll let you yeah, know I get on. Absolutely. Very good. That's Stephanie Romyshevsky. Thanks for that. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. <laughs> <laughs>